everybody. Uh, why don't you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. That's right before the pastoral epistles, 1 Thessalonians. And just, uh, just keep your thumb right there in the first chapter. We're going to be jumping um, through all the chapters this morning. While you're turning there, uh, just in light of our our two-year anniversary, our birthday, I want to read something separate from that, uh, a song that King David wrote, giving thanks to God in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, and we'll spend the rest of the sermon just getting into the text of Thessalonians, but I want to, I just want to whet our appetites for a two-year anniversary by remembering a song of David. David says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. And this is our destiny. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you with hearts that are enraptured and entranced and overjoyed by the pure presence of the living God. Lord, I pray uh, and just thank you, Lord, for the anticipation that you are building in our hearts, not for anything other and except for the presence and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and crowd around you and just look at you. As Paul says, to behold the glory of the Lord and we can leave here and that could be all that we have and all that we need and all that we want and desire. As as the book of Acts declares, you put us here for that reason, to seek after you and to press in after you. That it's in you that we uh, exist and find our being. And so, Lord, we, we want to do that right now. Two years into this thing, we remind ourselves that that's all we want to come for today is to seek after your face, to be entranced by the Holy One of God, to behold you in your glory and in your splendor, and in doing so, in the process of beholding you, becoming more like you, being satisfied in who you are and who we are called to be in light of who you are. So we ask right now that as we rejoice in you and what you've done, you'd show us a deeper way to go. You'd show us a direction. You would give us vision for who we are as the people of God in the city of Santa Barbara, and we would charge hard after you, Christ, never looking back to the things that we let go of. That even here now, you are calling men and women of God, to be fishers of men. I pray that this time forth and forevermore, we would cast down our nets and follow after Jesus Christ. You are worthy of being followed after. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So with your thumb in First Thessalonians, we'll get to that in a minute. I just want to kind of 
popcorn around that short uh, letter as we go, but I just kind of want to sit in this place of rejoicing and wonder over what God has done in the middle of his church. And I just want us to, just want us to leave here at least with that, at least with reminiscing what God has done. Perhaps we've been so busy, I don't know, if you're like me, we, you know, we've been busy, we've been into so many things that it, it, it actually takes spiritual discipline to stop yourself for a moment of gratitude, to, to look at the things that God has done in your life and to say, identify certain things and say, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the things that you have done in my relationships, in my own life, in my church, in my city. And we gotta stop ourselves this Sunday and just relax. Be still and know that he is God and be in wonder over the things that he has done. It's an exciting time to be a part of the church. It's an exciting time to be a part of what God is doing. It's exciting times in a little beach town, in a little beach town uh, with a population just shy of 100,000 where the Mediterranean weather and the warm sun collide with an ocean breeze. There's a small little gathering of people that are gathering in the name of Jesus Christ in wonder of what the Lord is doing amidst them in the short time that they have been together. There was a church planner at one time that came into that town and uh, started a church uh, with the desire that there would be a drilling down in the local context of believers there. People living in that city would now be on mission, worshiping in the context of the neighborhood that they lived in. And that church planner, hit some personal times of suffering and for uh, his own reasons had to move across town to a smaller town nearby. But he didn't leave that town to fend for itself. Out of his love for that church, he left a young pastor to care for and love for them. And it's in that context that they are now celebrating God and what he has done, looking forward to where he is about to bring them. Any wild guesses about what church I'm talking about? Someone said reality. Actually, I'm talking about the church in Thessalonica. The only glimpse into the book, uh, into the church in Thessalonica that we have outside of the letter that Paul wrote to them is Acts chapter 17. And we begin to go through that, we see a familiar scene. In Acts chapter 17, verse one through four, Paul uh, goes through a, a popular path on the way to Thessalonica. He makes his way into Thessalonica seeking a synagogue where he can explain the scriptures as was his custom, verse one. He finds a group of people and he begins to do what he generally does from city to city. He begins to explain and give evidence from the scriptures that Jesus had to suffer and die and be uh, risen again and that this Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the promised Holy One of God, Uh, the Christ. And we see in the first four uh, verses of Acts chapter 17 that there were a group of Jews that believed and were persuaded by that. Not only them, but there were some Gentiles. There were some uh, Greeks there in the city that believed and also some leading women in the town. And all of a sudden, bam, a church is starting to be assembled. A little young church is being assembled by the powerful hand of God. 
But in verses 5 through 10 of Acts 17, another group of Jews got jealous and assembled another mob uh, of troublemakers, and they begin to persecute the church, and they begin to attack Paul. He began to suffer so much so that he had to flee town, and he went over to a presiding small town of Berea close by. The church was persecuted by this group of marauders, so much so that the, the host of that home in which the church was meeting in, Jason, was pulled out of the home, drug into the street, presumably manhandled and roughhoused, and even forced to pay a fine by the proconsuls of that day. But Paul didn't leave the church by themselves. He left them with a young pastor by the name of Timothy. Timothy remained in that city, Acts chapter 17, verse 14, and it's out of that context that Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. We see later in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, that Timothy actually leaves Uh, for a visit to meet up with Paul, presumably to tell him how things are going. uh, Paul is is wondering and longing, how is the church doing? How are they doing? My glory and my joy, my people in whom I rejoice, how are they doing? And Timothy probably tells him at that point how things are going in the years and in that uh, short time span that they had been gathering as a church. And it must have been good because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we hear Paul saying in verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. And so that's why Paul, right out of the gate, begins to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, good reports about this new church meeting in this beach town in the middle of this Mediterranean area known as Macedonia. And this is what he says in verse 1. This is our text. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of of our God and Father. Right out the gate, Paul is thrilled with what God is doing in the middle of this church. Thrilled with what God is doing in this little famous beach town known as Thessalonica. And yet, as some of you shouted out earlier, the situation, the season in the life of the Thessalonians almost seems very parallel to our life as a church, right? It's really close. There's some close, I'd actually say it's so close, it's creepy. When I read this, when I read the situation, it's almost like he's describing us 2,000 years later, which is why I believe that this book, even though written 2,000 years ago about the Thessalonians, is still written for us as reality Santa Barbara today. Perhaps the Lord would have a prophetic word in it as it is so close to who we are as a church, where we are and what we're doing and what we've been through in the past two years. So how should we understand being together for two years? Well, we should be like Paul and very thankful. And I can say, having been a part of this body for two years, having been with you, having been in the trenches with you, having eaten food with you, and having rejoiced with you, and having weeped with some of you, and having laughed with some of you, that I can say about 
this church together the same words that Paul said, I rejoice and give thanks to God always for you. I make mention of you in my prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work in the faith. When I think of Reality Santa Barbara two years later, I think of people who work hard in the faith. I know there's Sundays where I yell and I scream and I get crazy, but that's because I know you can handle it. You are a faithful people, and I believe that. Every time I see people whose lives are changed, every time I see some of you come up with an idea for your business or, or, uh, or your job place, some of you thinking along those terms, Missio Christi, the mission of Christ, how does that look like in my job and in my vocation? How does this look like in my family? And I see you by the power of the Spirit being faithful from that. I think, wow, the labor of the faith. God is doing it in our church. Every time I baptize someone at Ledbetter, I think of that person walking down to the beach, I think of someone was involved in their life because I never give altar calls. You ever notice that? In fact, I don't think anyone gets saved from the sermons I give. Maybe they do, but the large percentage of the people that get saved are from interactions with you. And I don't mind that. In fact, I would prefer that. Maybe one or two people hearing something, but 99.5% of the people who get baptized, about 50 of them uh, in, in this local gathering since we've been meeting, have been saved and converted because of family or friends involved in their lives. I think of our work in the faith. And I'm so happy and stoked and excited about the church that I get to call my family, but not just the work of the faith, but labor of love. You see, we're not just a faithful church, in my humble opinion, but we're a loving church. And that seems to be something hard to come by these days. When I think of, uh, when I think of people in our body who have suffered and the, quick, with the, the, the quickness with which our body rushes around them to comfort them, and to encourage them. When I think of relationships that have been reconciled, when I think of marriages and, uh, uh, and broken relationships that have been reconciled and been put together because of your labor and the love, I think of you. I think of what Paul said and I think of you. When I think of local vendors who are not Christians and their opinion about us as a church, I think, wow, that is so gracious, the favor that we have in this city. And I remember it had to be because they interacted with Someone within this body. When I think of Santa Barbara High School and their, uh, their favor towards us and the Santa Barbara City College and so on and so forth, I think, wow, God's favor is upon us and the city is showing favor upon us. That is because it's not because of our name. It's not because of really anything that happens inside here. It's because you guys are outside loving in a labor of love and working in the faith. And I rejoice in that. So I think we should be thankful. I think that we are blessed by the Spirit of God in this day and that two years into this thing, we can say the Spirit of God dwells within, uh, within us in a very powerful and tangible way because these things don't really happen by themselves. But they're happening among us. We should be excited. And yet we should also not stop there with thanksgiving, right? And Paul doesn't stop with chapter one. He writes three more chapters. <laughs> and 
And after he gives thanks for the, the labor of love and the, the work of the faith and the hope in Jesus Christ in the church, and I believe in our church today, he goes on into the next three chapters to essentially, if I could summarize it, I would say, thank you. Thank God for where you're at and where we've been brought uh, after this period of time, but persevere. In other words, Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And there comes a change in the mentality of a person who runs when they move from a sprint to a marathon. Some of you are running in marathons uh, recently and currently. You know that. It's different than running down the block as fast as you can. You gotta pace yourself in a certain way. You gotta, you gotta, uh, you gotta prepare yourself for the long haul. You gotta prepare yourself for longevity. I believe Paul would say to the church in Thessalonica and to Reality Santa Barbara after two years, get ready for a marathon. See, Paul when he set out to plant a church in Thessalonica, because of the context in which they live, set out with a certain desire in mind. One scholar puts it this way, Paul sought to form converts into a new community in order to provide them with the context their faith and commitment to God could develop and mature. In other words, he wanted to take all of these converts and put them together into a a, 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 a family of God amidst a broader culture that was against maybe their, their beliefs and ideals to live in that context as a beacon of hope and as a place where other believers can be strengthened in their commitment and in their development to God. He sought to create a family there in Thessalonica in which they could, by being there, develop and mature in their faith and commitment to God. And he, uh, he identified at least two things that would help them in that. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Where after he says, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, God, and praise God, and I'm praying for you and stoked about all that you have done, your labor of love, your work in the faith, but, and he repeats a couple words. See if you can find it as we start in verse one. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. That's what I want to call the title of the sermon this morning, Excel Still More. In other words, praise God for what he's done, but stop looking back. Let's charge ahead, persevere. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Excel still even more. You know, I was telling him that, even though things seem to be uh, at least looking positive. When... When the letter to the Thessalonians was, was written, it was written somewhere between 49 AD and 51 AD, meaning it was within a generation of Jesus' resurrection and ascent. So there were people in that church, certainly, who heard these tales, perhaps knew a person that saw Jesus in fleshly form. Maybe there were even people in that church who saw a glimpse, who were a part of that. In other words, it was very close to the fulcrum of that original revival at Pentecost. And so there was a sense there, as was in a lot of churches in the first century, that Jesus' 
uh, second coming was imminent, meaning it was, it was gonna be within our lifetime. We saw him leave, he's going back to heaven, he's coming back probably before we die. So we could just, you know, kind of kick back and do our thing because he's gonna come get us. And you know the effect that that had it's, uh, certainly on people in, in, in Thessalonica. Well, for one, we're told in, in some parts that Paul had to tell some of the young people to get jobs and to work. So some of those younger people probably were mooching off the older, richer, wealthier people. Paul was saying, hey, you know, you got to start working. <laughs> but there were also other deep things. For example, there was persecution going on. Remember in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul was chased out of town. The house group homeowner was uh, dragged from his house into the street, fined incredibly. There was persecution in that city, and there was more, plenty more to come. This is something that perhaps startled the church. Like, wait, why is this happening? I thought we were victorious in Christ. Jesus conquered death. He's coming back for us. Why is this all not panning out? We know that uh, there was death uh, occurring in the church uh, recently in the church in, uh, in the Thessalonian church because Paul had to inform the uninformed in First uh, Thessalonians chapter three uh, about the right way to think about death. Uh, excuse me, chapter four. We do not want you to be uninformed, verse 13, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Those who have died in this life will be the first to rise when Christ comes. In other words, there were probably people in the church who, who weren't even seeing that coming. They were like, Jesus is going to come in our life, and then someone dies, and they're just troubled by that. Like, wait, what do we do now? This isn't supposed to happen. This persecution isn't supposed to happen. People aren't supposed to die. We're supposed to have resurrected bodies and live with God in glory. What is this setback? Paul is there to tell him, hey, this isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. And you have nothing to worry about because the Spirit of God is in you and Christ is coming for his family. It just might not be today. As if to make things worse, there was a steep sense of pluralism in that culture just as there is in ours. Rome loved their many gods. The pantheon, Greek pantheon, was covered uh, in not only Roman culture, but in Greek culture, they both loved their gods, and there were plenty of them to choose from. And Christianity was something of a, an anomaly in that culture. In fact, Rome, uh, Romans were uh, popular for calling, they popularly called Christians atheists, which is a little bit ironic, because Christians only had one God to choose from, and he didn't have a graven image or uh, a, a face to recognize him, and he didn't have a proper name. And so it was a very hard thing in that culture to be a Christian, as it is today. Meanwhile, people are dying, and there's persecution. Thessalonian church is a little bit rattled. Paul comes in and says, hey, you're in this for the long haul. This isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. Get ready to persevere and get ready to excel still more. And specifically, he tells them to excel still more in two ways. In verse one of chapter four, he tells them to excel still more, but look at what he says in verse two. For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
In other words, I want you to excel in this life until Christ comes back in sanctification and in holiness. Sanctification is one of those weird words that we don't use, you know, when we're around the dinner table eating corn dogs or whatever it is that we eat. But it's, it's almost synonymous with holiness. Holiness is a state of being. It's what we attribute to God. God is completely holy. Holiness means that he is completely other from anything that he has uh, created. He's pure. He's blazingly holy. He is uh, without sin in such a way that for anyone with sin, it's almost too hot to look at. The prophet Habakkuk tells us that he is too pure in his eyes to, be, uh, to look upon anything that is unpure or evil or sinful. And so God himself is holy. What this means for us is that when God has a people or a community of people or a family or a church, all the same thing, and he desires as he does to dwell among his people, then we are called to live in such a way that reflects who God is holy. So the, the, the way of being is holiness, but the process of being is sanctification. You are being sanctified in this life to be like God. God is holy, so you are in this life being made more holy the more you live and breathe. Paul says, you're doing a great job right now, Thessalonians, but I want you to excel still more. Until the day you die or Christ comes again, excel still more. But it's not just there. Look at what he says in verse 10. Uh, actually, verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourself are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Whoa. Hey, that's a, that's a good thing coming from Paul, right? I want that to be said of our church. Paul is basically saying to the church in Thessalonica, hey, uh, you know, I don't even need to write to you guys about love because you're doing it. Like, you're loving the whole world, all of Macedonia. Now, he actually writes this to certain churches, right? First Corinthians, anybody? The love chapter, chapter 13. He actually has to correct certain things that they're doing wrong uh, in the way of the gifts. He's like, hey, just because you, you prophesy and speak in tongues doesn't mean you're all special. You can prophesy all you want from the throne room of the living God, but if you don't have love, you're just a noisy, clanging symbol. And then he goes into chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love, does not, uh, uh, love is not jealous, love is uh, 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 a bunch of other things. <laughs> but he says to the church and he says to the Thessalonian church, hey, I don't even need to write to you about love because you love all of Macedonia. Don't you long for that to be said of reality SB in Santa Barbara? <laughs> that we are the most loving group of people in the whole city? That even if people don't agree with what we uh, believe, that they at least recognize that we love them? Listen to what Paul says to, to, to the Thessalonians. Hey, I don't even need to write to you about love because you are loving. Verse 15, uh, Verse 10, sorry. For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. You're loving the whole world, but you can love them even more. 
you're walking in the labor of love and in the work of the faith and in hope in Christ and holiness, but you can excel still more. In other words, until we meet Christ face to face and are glorified in utter perfection in the face of Christ the Holy One, we have more to go. We can simultaneously be satisfied in Christ and unsatisfied in the status quo. We can still in this life be growing and longing for more. And that's what Paul says is required of the church today. To grow in love and to grow in holiness. Here's why growing in those two things is profound. For some people, both of those things are foreign. We're not holy. We don't love anybody. We need a lot of work, right? <laughs> but for those of us that are doing a good job, let's say for those, of the, uh, for those of us that are ahead of the curve a little bit, we might be growing in one area to the exclusion of the other. That's generally how I find myself operating. I'll carry myself, all the, I'll swing all the way over to the other side of the pendulum, and I'll forget, oh yeah, I gotta do this one. Oh yeah, let me do that. And then I'll swing all the way over to this side of the pendulum, and I'll be like, oh, I forgot that. Then I'll go over here and I'll forget this. There's so much stuff involved in the Christian life and I find myself with tunnel vision. But I have these pet things. And these two things, for a lot of, thing, uh, for a lot of people, holiness and love seem almost at odds with one another. You ever notice that? And perhaps you find that in your own life. Maybe you are really good at walking in the holiness of God. Maybe you have a grand view of God's holiness and of his, uh, you, uh, you, you have a lot of reverence for God. You have this big view of your own sin. You recognize that. You love to re repent of your sin and, uh, uh, and to be changed in sanctification. But you don't have a, a great view of the love of God. You know how that affects you? It means, uh, well, Perhaps you've noticed this in your own life and in your own experience. You love God's holiness. You hate your sin. You are uh, obsessed with repenting. And you notice that because you are not perfect, you will never be quite as holy as you would like to be. And because there's no love involved in your life, well, how do you treat yourself? You beat yourself up over the head. You're heavy on yourself. You maybe experience a lot of guilt and a lot of shame because you haven't quite made it just yet. Well, you know how this manifests itself to people around you? Well, you treat the same, them the same way you treat yourself. You perhaps have a high view of holiness, and for everybody else, you find yourself frustrated that they don't also. And so you find yourself correcting other people, but you don't do it in love. You are very brash, and you are very rough around the edges, and you find yourself hurting and offending a lot of people. This is what happens when you have holiness but no love. There's actually a word for that that we throw around a lot. It's called judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is birthed when someone is deficient with love but has a lot of holiness. And I would argue to say that it's not real holiness because holiness and love are inseparable. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe you have a lot of love. Maybe you're really good at understanding people's brokenness and their sin. You, your heart, you know, you wear your, your heart on your sleeve. You empathize with people. You accentuate grace. And you, you experience that yourself. Like when you fall down, you, you pick yourself up. Or the grace of God picks, your, picks you up. And you, you revel in that and you rejoice in that. But maybe there's times where you, you take that so far that it's to the exclusion of God's holiness. And this is how you know. 
You love grace, you love God, you love yourself, you love everybody around you, but you have a low view of your own sin. And you also have a low view of God's holiness. That thing that the author of Hebrews described when he said our God is a consuming fire. Or what Paul said to the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is working inside you to work and to will for his good pleasure. That God still is holy. How does this affect you? Well, perhaps you let yourself off the hook too much. And by that, I want to be very careful because God's grace does pick up the slack when we miss it. But maybe for some of us, we go so far that we forget about the beauty of repentance. We forget about the disgust for sin. It doesn't break our hearts anymore, and we frankly stop caring. And maybe for some of you, you've just stopped living a holy life. Maybe for some of you, you stop paying attention to the law of God, the things that he calls us to do. And it's just all about grace and all about love. And when you're around people, this is how it affects your relationships. Well, you love everybody, you're with everybody, you pat everybody on the back, you comfort them, you help them along, but you never confront issues that need to be confronted. And perhaps you tell yourself, well, I just want to be loving, I don't want to be judgmental, but you do it so far that it ends up not being love, it ends up being hypocrisy. Because the truth is, you're not loving, you're afraid. You're afraid of what people are going to think. Hypocrisy comes into play when we live in a certain way that doesn't match the, the things that we believe. When we live one way indoors and we live another outdoors. These two things, judgmentalism and hypocrisy, happen when we are missing out on either love or holiness. And those, those deficiencies actually hinder us as a family. That's what causes a broken family. In fact, there's probably many of you here in this church today who've been hurt by people who have been judgmental. Anybody, maybe? Someone's been judgmental, and that's, that's hurt you, that's pushed you away from the cause of Christ. Or maybe there have been some of you have who have run into someone who is uh, hypocritical and that's given you a bad taste in your mouth about the Christian way of life. These things make for a broken family and some of you have been hurt by those. Maybe some of you have, been, uh, have hurt others by those very things. It's a deficiency in holiness and love. It causes judgmentalism and hypocrisy. It turns out living faithfully as Christians in this world today is harder than maybe we thought. In 2010, Dave Kinnaman, the president of the Barna Group, came out with that, uh, a book called Unchristian, in which he conducted research across the nation among young, uh, young people outside the church, uh, I think between the ages of 18 and 25, in which he asked them the question, what is your perception of those inside the church? And he got a variety of answers, but among the top three were, can you take a wild guess? Hypocrisy and judgmentalism. The very two things that Paul was warning us about 2,000 years ago are the very things that people outside the church consider us to be. This is more powerful and life-giving and reverent today than it's ever been. Two 
turns out that living this way is harder than we thought because who are we kidding? We can't be holy as God is holy. We're not as loving as we ought to be. We are truthfully very selfish people. I am more selfish than I am comfortable with admitting. And yet we're called to be this group of people set apart for God's holy name in holiness and in love for one another. And you know what Paul's answer is for the difficulty of living that way? Well, look at chapter 1 in verse, uh, in chap- chapter one, verse 1 through 3. When he says in verse 3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren. As, ah, oh, I'm in the wrong book. First letter to the Thessalonians, not the second one. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Listen to verse 4, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. Stop right there. That is the most heavy and beautiful and profound phrase in the entire letter to the church in Thessalonica. Brothers and sisters, beloved by God, stop and consider his choice of you. Paul, in other words, in order to show us where our power for life as a, as a family of God in Santa Barbara is to direct our attention back on what Christ has done, not on what we're trying to do. Not on our quest for holiness, not on our trying to love and uh, everybody in the whole world and be faithful. We are called to do those things, but he's just wanting to make sure the horse is in the right place in front of the cart. Because some of us think in our minds that we need to be holy and love people and do all of God's commands in order to be loved by God. Paul is saying you are loved by God so that you can freely obey him as a response to those things. That is wildly different in motivation. He focuses our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's his choice of you. It's the same thing that Jesus would say uh, in the gospel of John. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Do you understand what this would have had, uh, this effect this would have had in the minds of the, uh, of the disciples, those roughhouse Galileans in the early days? You understand that when a disciple wanted, when a uh, Uh, A Jew wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi in that day. He went through decade of schooling, his entire life trying to be at the top of his class until one day he would follow after a rabbi that he wanted to emulate and idolize. He would pursue that rabbi and say to that rabbi, I want to follow you. Will you receive me? And if he was up to par, if he was at the top of his class, if he uh, hit all of the requirements and the criteria, that Uh, rabbi would receive him as a pupil. Jesus turns everything on its face when he goes up to not the best in the class, but those who were rejected by the class. People like you and me and Peter and John, Andrew and James. And he said, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go bear fruit. Or as he would say, as they were casting out their nets one day, Drop your fishing pole, Peter, and follow after me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. They dropped their nets, and they followed after Jesus. And the same 
exhortation and request and invite of the gospel is true today. You who are rejected by the world have been chosen by God. By grace and by nothing you bring to the table but because of his relentless loving kindness. And that does something to a person's heart. For example, when I feel judgmental, when I feel like holier than thou, and I refocus my attention on the gospel, you know what it does to my judgmentalism? It causes me to treat people as Christ has treated me. In other words, yeah, sure, there might be people in my life who don't deserve my forgiveness or deserve my grace or deserve my favor, but guess what? I didn't deserve that from the Lord either, and I was far worse to God than they were to me. And because he lavishes me with grace, I want to lavish others with grace whether they deserve it or not. It also changes our perception of holiness. Because before you hated God's holiness. You were a rebel against God's holiness and against God's kingdom. But when you were saved, the Holy Spirit invaded your heart and your life and opened your eyes to see the beauty of God's holiness. And that is a mark of a Christian is you can now say with Jesus, as he did in the Beatitudes, blessed is that person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And you find yourself for the first time in your life satisfied because you found what you were looking for, Bono. <laughs> and now you want to be holy as God is holy. And you found the power by which you can do that. This is exactly what Paul prays for Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. Look at him bring up these two things, holiness and love. Verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father. Listen to this, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So he takes those two things. He says, I want you to be established in holiness. I want you to increase in love. That's what I want you to live as, as the family of God in the city of Santa Barbara. And your motivation for that is going to be the coming of Jesus Christ for his family. This is something he brings up in every chapter in, in the letter to the Thessalonians. In other words, Jesus created by himself a family of rebels, natural, host, uh, naturally hostile people towards each other. He, brought, he brings them together by the blood of the lamb, causes them to live together reconciled, and then uh, charges them to live set apart from the things of the world as a light to the world, in love with one another as a beacon to everybody watching and to edify one another. And he says, I'm coming back for my family. Therefore, be about the family business. Be about the family business. I'm coming back for my own family. Until that point, this is a marathon and I'm leaving you to run it. To run the race. To run not as one who runs aimlessly, as Paul said, to box, not like one who is beating the air, but to discipline my body, to bring it under strict subjection so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I want you to run this race, people, because there is a finish line, 
and you will cross it by the power of God. And I want you to cross it with joyful perseverance, not one who simply escapes as one through the flames. I want you to cross that finish line looking back going, yeah! Looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ who will then say to you, good job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the arms of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. And there you will go because your life was spent well. Friends, that, uh, just setting my alarm, I'm not texting right now. <laughs> FYI, whatever. That, uh, that, uh, that deny, dynamic of holiness and love is beautiful. Seems kind of random, <laughs> but it's actually, it's mesmerizing when people are growing in both of those things. In the early church, uh, this is one of the things that James exhorted the, the Christian church to walk in when he said in James chapter 1, verse 27, uh, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this. What? To care for orphans and widows in their distress, love, and to remain unstained by the world. Holiness or sanctification, being set apart. So it's those two things coming together. I am in the world with my family, loving everybody, or as Paul says to the Galatians, uh, doing good to everybody, but especially those of the household of the faith. So we're in the mess, but we're loving everybody relentlessly. That is an incredible dynamic that throughout the history of the church radically transforms the world. If you were to look at some of the testimonies of people in the early church, you would look at some of the things that they were called to do, and many of us would look at some of the things that, you know, Tertullian and Cyprian uh, commanded of their church in the first century, and we would probably accuse them of being legalistic because they were so strenuous and strict in their moral life and in their moral code. They called people to quit their jobs if there was any type of uh, moral gray area. They called people to uh, leave behind hobbies, leave behind things that they loved and embraced. Anything that smacked of the old lifestyle, they demanded that the church would leave, by, uh, leave that uh, by in the past in order to be sanctified, unstained by the world. And yet they were drilling down deep in the middle of the world. And the early church was just as relentless in their love as they were their strict code of ethics. In other words, they didn't require people to live holy only, but they came alongside them and loved them and fed them and walked with them and cried with them. And that dynamic, when done together, looks alluring to the world around them, and it did in Rome. People groups around that church in that day looking in at a family that believed so wholeheartedly about a certain thing about Jesus that they were willing to leave behind their lives for it. And they somehow loved each other even more than their own related families. One scholar writes of Christians in the first and third century, love of one's neighbor is not an exclusively Christian virtue, but in our period, in the first and third century, the Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group thereabouts. 
the result of that very basic, simple living, set apart, loving one another, was that it turned the Roman Empire on its head. It did what no other nation was able to do but only dreamed about. The mighty iron nation that Dan, the prophet Daniel likened them unto. The nation that steamrolled all of its adversaries. The nation that expanded across the world so far that the sun never set on their property. The, uh, the, the empire that ruled with an iron fist. The empire that caused would-be wannabe renegades and rebels to quake in their boots. This mighty nation, this mighty empire under Caesar that caused enemies to crumble, that caused superpower nations to fall to their knees before Rome, itself was brought to its knees by a band of Christians who were simply loving God and loving each other. Do you believe that? A thousand years and nobody could do that until a group of reckless, Galilean, sloppy Christians that didn't even make it into the history books begin to live sanctified lives and loving one another recklessly. Rome was dismantled in a matter of centuries, meaning that little by little, some Romans started to be converted and it snowballed until all of Rome was converted and they had no superstructure. You believe that? Right out from under them, the entire world is changed until Caesar himself becomes a believer. This can happen today. And I'm not talking about going to war against nations. I'm talking about going to war against principalities and powers. Those that love our, would love to wreak havoc in our city, is there a group or a family of believers that would like to say, absolutely not. I live here. This is my town. The Spirit of God dwells in me, and in whom the Spirit of God dwells in me, there can be no one that comes against. If God is for us, who can come against us? Satan, of course not. No one can separate us from the love of God who is in us by Christ Jesus. But I've got something to tell you. We can't turn anything on its head if ours is still buried in the ground. When I was in high school, I used to play ice hockey, which is really weird. I lived a few hours up north uh, in Watsonville is where I'm from, and I used to play in San Jose. And I remember my first season, the shock that I had when I realized that everyone in the league was bigger than me. There were like five girls, by the way, in the league. Everyone was bigger than me. And I learned really quick that I had to be fast. If I couldn't be big, I had to be fast. So it was really fast. And early on in that, uh, in that early season, it, it caused me to, to, to be a little proud of myself because nobody could catch me. And I remember one day taunting this guy, uh, he was a center on the opposing team, and <clears throat> I just brushed shoulders with him as we were going down the ice, and I taunted him, and I was doing my thing, and I was feeling sure of myself. And later through that game, I was going down the center of the ice, just doing some fancy stick work and just like super into myself and like cartwheels and all of that stuff. No. And I, I was so into it that I put my head down right through, the middle of the, uh, right through the middle of the ice. If you play any kind of team sport, you know you never put your head down. 
Well, I caught a guy's shoulder going about 10 miles an hour, lifted me up off the ground because most of the guys I played with in high school were 200 pounds. So he lifted me up off the ice. I fell on the ice on my back. I looked up and it was the guy I was taunting. <laughs> I learned two things that game. One, never taunt during your first season playing anything. Number two, never put your head down. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have much to be thankful for in the city of Santa Barbara, but we're only two years old. We're like a toddler. We're like a little toddler. We should be excited about that. We have so much more to live for in this city. So much more that God wants to do. We should be unsatisfied with the past and with the status quo. And I sincerely believe with all of my heart that there is coming a time where God will release a great outpouring on the city of Santa Barbara across the American Riviera like we have never seen up until this point so that every church, not just reality, will experience a great revival of thirst for God. I believe that that's going to happen and I wanna be a part of that. But you have to know that with every revival, with every great outpouring of God, comes tremendous opposition by Satan. And if you're living faithful lives for Christ in, this, in these last days, you will come head to head with that opposition. You will suffer. You will meet trials. You will meet opposition in various ways. And don't be fooled by that like the Thessalonians saying, oh, what's going on? This is weird. We're like having a hard time right now. <laughs> Jesus said, all who want to live faithful lives and follow after me will suffer. You're going to have that. And when you are in the middle of it, if you're living faithful lives in the middle of that chaos, you cannot put your head down. This is not a time for the church to fall asleep. This is a time for the church to run a marathon. Not because we have no idea where we're going and we're running aimlessly, but because we have been given a finish line. We are going to meet that finish line. He is going to bring us there. Our feet will not slip, but don't let your head sink down. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And by some divine act of joy, maybe even a bit of humor, God has chosen people like us to be a part of that great work. Don't get caught with your head down. Look up with joyful perseverance, asking the Lord, what areas in my life can I realign with your mission? And let them work in your life, because it's gonna be good. There will be some bad vignettes, there will be some turn of events that didn't match what you thought was going to happen. There will be some tears here and there. But transcending all of that stuff will be the joy set before you as you endure what God has called you to chase after and you see a great harvest unleashed right before your eyes. You run into those pearly white gates with Jesus and his arms open wide saying, you have spent your life well. Come and party with me for all of eternity. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we ask right now that you would open our eyes again to eternity. You would give us eyes to see beyond 
the small things and you would give us a vision for what you're doing here in Santa Barbara. We love your city, Lord. We love it because we know you love it even more. You are, you desire, as you did to the church in Thessalonica, to pour out your spirit across the American Riviera in deep places, up on the mountainside, deep in the valleys, through State Street, bleeding out into Goleta, in Isla Vista, on the beach, on the west side, in the deepest, darkest corners, you want to be there and you want to be present. Lord, we want to be present with you. So I pray that right now as we worship before you, you would begin to purge from our hearts anything that has set itself up as an obstacle, an obstacle of comfort, an obstacle of apathy, an obstacle of judgmentalism, an obstacle of hypocrisy, anything that has lied to us and schemed against us saying there is a better way to live life, I pray that you would crush those idols to show that you have set wonderful things, wonderful and good works before us that we should walk in them. And we wanna walk in them together as a church. So Lord, open our eyes. One, to be thankful for where you have us as a church and two, to be unsatisfied with the status quo because you are a great God. You are the Lord. You're slow to anger and quick to loving kindness. You forgive our iniquities and cause your face to shine on those who have sinned against you. And I pray that you would show us once again your heart and your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.